0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of Talking Terror, brought to you by the Terrorism and Extremism Research Centre here at the University of East London. I'm John Morrison. Today's podcast was recorded on October twenty fourth, twenty seventeen, at approximately five twenty or three twenty PM GMT. As always, if you want to stay in touch with us, uh, be sure to tweet at us with, at TERCUEL and tweet at us with the hashtag Talking Terror. And check out our website, uel.ac.uk slash for all the most up-to-date information about the work we do here at Turk. So, now t- time for today's guest. It's my great honor to welcome on board on today's pod, Professor Mia Bloom. Mia is professor of communications at Georgia State University. She conducts ethnographic field research in Europe, the Middle East and South Asia and speaks eight different languages. She's authored several books and articles on terrorism and violent extremism, including Dying to Kill, The Allure of Suicide Terror, published in 2005. Living Together After Ethnic Killing with Roy Licklider, uh, published in 2007. Bombshell, uh, Women and Terror, published in 2011 and 11. She is a former uh, term member of the Council of Foreign Relations and has held research or teaching appointments at Princeton, Cornell, Harvard and McGill Universities. Under the auspices of the Minerva Research Initiative of Department of Defense, Mia is currently conducting research with Professor John Horgan on how children become involved in terrorist organization. Mia and John's findings will be published in a book for Cornell University Press entitled Small Arms, Children and Terror. Mia has a PhD in political science from Columbia University, a master's in Arab studies from the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University, and a bachelor's from McGill University in Russian, Islamic, and Middle Eastern studies. Mia, thank you so much for joining us in today's episode, and welcome to the pod. Uh,
1: thank you so much for having me, John Morrison.
0: So how did you first become involved in this area of research?
1: Um, it actually goes back a very long way. I spent 1984 and 1985 in Israel, and uh, I was on a fellowship at Tel Aviv University for one year. It was the overseas student program. And, uh, of course, um, being in Israel, you studied about the Arab-Israeli conflict, but I, I recall being at the bus station in Tel Aviv, and there was a package. And, of course, everyone reacted as if it was a suspicious package surrounding it. And eventually, it was found to be nothing. But what struck me is that the moment um, they had detonated the package after finding out that there was nothing inside it that was dangerous, everyone just went back to their daily goings-on and daily life as if nothing had ever happened. And, you know, I stood there for a while contemplating my own mortality <laughs> at the ripe old age of 17, thinking, aren't you more pushed by any of this? And no. And so I was really interested um, first starting, I had studied with Itamar Rabinovich, who eventually became uh, the ambassador to the United States. Um, I had some wonderful professors, and um, I didn't continue it in, in, in great detail until in 1989. I was uh, helping Ehud Sprinzak with his book, Ascendance of Israel's Radical Right. And so in my initial research into the area was looking at uh, Jewish terrorism. And then later on, I was able to use what I had studied with my degree in Islamic studies to study jihadi terrorism.
0: And when you were doing this, obviously, um, looking at the, say, looking at Jewish terrorism, looking at the link between religion and terrorism, what kind of readings were influential on you. I know you've pointed out um, on our website that Fear and Trembling, Terrorism and Three Religious Traditions by David Rapoport, uh was one of the influential texts on you. Would it be around that time that that was uh, brought to your attention?
1: Absolutely. Actually, the Albert Bandura um, work on moral disengagement uh, came first because he had very much influenced Ehud Sprinzak's research. Oh. And so Ehud taught The Bandura article to the even to undergrads, and that was highly influential in sort of understanding the psychology of terrorism, but then looking at how. The marriage of political violence and religious justification occurred not just in one religious tradition, but in every religious tradition, which is what I think the Rockport piece is best capable of conveying. That it's not about one group. That really influenced me a lot as I was writing Dying to Kill.
0: Yeah, and this is—I think this is such an important lesson to take that it's sometimes, especially in a post-9/11 world, like people often just forget this and just affiliate with one religion, but every religion has had it. But you say that it influenced Dying to Kill your book, Dying to Kill, the Allure of Suicide Terror. In what way did it influence it? And what were you trying to achieve with that book, Dying to Kill?
1: Well I think the opening I think the opening sentence is, you know, what would make someone justify religiously, you know, killing themselves and others? And I in in the chapter I make it very clear that this is something that is not An Islamic phenomenon, and so you can really tell David's imprimatur, uh, not just on the jacket cover (laughs) that he endorsed, because he he was a great mentor to me when I was writing this book, as was Bruce Hoffman. Um, So the two of them together were very influential in helping shape the ideas, in making sure that as I was looking at the dynamics of suicide terrorism, um, it wasn't just Rooted to one particular conflict or one particular group, and it's one of the reasons why I'm very grateful for the fact that you know, dying to kill is still cited, is still used. I still even get a check uh, for my uh, residuals on it. But it's because the theory, the the meta theory that I used to explain these dynamics is true even of cases that didn't yet exist in 2005, for example, for ISIS. And so the idea that not only is every religion involved in the use of violence, but that when there are multiple groups and the population is willing to support these levels of violence, then you will see very often a competition between the groups to outdo, or what I call outbid, one another. This is a great contrast, for example, when I was in Northern Ireland and I was doing interviews on the Falls Road, where the use of any kind of anything that even remotely looked like suicide bombing, for example, car bombings where they didn't let the driver leave Mm -hmm. in 1990, um, that the population in Northern Ireland didn't want to, quote unquote, look like those fanatics in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, this is where the population has more power than we assume with regard to mitigating or limiting the kinds of policies or the kinds of tactics that the terrorist groups use. You know, they can only go so far.
0: Yeah, I think this is a really important point and it's similar to a point that was raised in our very first episode of this podcast by Andrew Silk. The role that support plays, the role that the, the community plays in supporting uh, these groups is vitally important. So with that in mind, like you, you talked about why how it wouldn't be supported uh, in Northern Ireland, Why then, what did you find in in your field research? uh, Why was it being uh, supported elsewhere?
1: Well, just as a general rule, whether it was in Sri Lanka or research on Chechnya or in Palestine, one of the things that I had observed was that rarely was suicide terrorism associated with the first iteration of the conflict. So that, you know, in the first time around, it wasn't used. Now, between the first and the second conflict, very often, the state that had been attacked tended to increase its levels of counterterrorism and how aggressive it was with the civilians of the other side, engaging in things like aerial bombardments. And so in interviews with the uh, families of Palestinian suicide bombers or failed bombers, uh, as, I, as I often joked, um, Nicole Ergo, who had done many of these interviews, um, successful bombers are very hard to interview, so you can only interview the failed ones. Um, They would say that if our civilians are not sacrosanct, why should theirs? There was also this almost dynamic that as many of these states, these are first world states, would rely heavily on technology that would create a physical distance between, let's say, the pilot who's dropping a bomb or the drone pilot who's sending a drone attack to Pakistan or Afghanistan, the desire to make that conflict intimate again. In other words, oh, oh, you think you're safe. And so there was this dynamic of, well, you don't observe the sacrosanct nature of our civilians, we won't observe the sacrosanct nature of yours. And so what that population became willing to tolerate in terms of levels of violence increased and I saw this in Sri Lanka and I saw this among Palestinians and I saw this in every different conflict that there wasn't there was this very strange um, dynamic, this interaction between what the terrorists did, what counterterrorism policies were then formulated to combat terrorism, and then the response then the next cycle around which tended to be a lot more violent yeah
0: and i suppose one of the great illustrations uh of this about the if our population has been treated like this uh if if our population isn't sacrosanct uh, others shouldn't be as well is the statements after the the murder of lee rigby of the the, the murderer right to the camera say, talking about this very point even when it's not related to suicide terrorism as a whole this can be used as a justification as well you mentioned the concept of outbidding that i feel is for dying to kill this is one of the most influential um pieces of the book could you could you Talk to our listeners uh, about exactly what you mean by outbidding and where else it is influence, influential outside of suicide terrorism.
1: Well, it actually came very much um, from outside suicide terrorism. I was doing my pre-doc at Harvard, and there was at the time a young grad student who's now a full professor at NYU named Kanchan Chandra, who was looking at voting in India. And so she actually was talking about outbidding and explaining, basically, the idea that um, as the right-wing parties and the left-wing parties were trying to capture a different part of the market, let's say, along a spectrum, that they kept leapfrogging over previous positions, but at some point, they had to, with an equilibrium, end up back towards the center. And so the outbidding actually comes from Kanchan's work. And most people who are in political science wouldn't necessarily see the connection between voting and terrorism, but I had started to see that in two ways. One was, in 2002, when more than one Palestinian group began to claim responsibility for suicide attacks, and that in 02 and 03, you would sometimes have an attack and no fewer than three or four different groups would try to claim it as their own. And of course, in the end, it was only one group. What that led to was not just Proving that the outbidding was happening, but it led to a change in how the terrorists then proceeded with an attack, where they became um, incentivized to film a video. These last will and testament videos that were heavily branded, that were that was describing the attack that they were about to perpetrate, giving credit to the organization and ensuring both in pre and post production branding that the organization would get credit for the attacks. This is really different from what we know from, let's say, the GTD, where something like 85% of attacks at that point were never claimed. Mm. And so this is a completely different trend. Not only are you claiming, you're making sure you get credit for the attack that you perpetrated. Yeah. It's... And so, is... so, sorry. Go, go on. Ahead.
0: Go on. No, you go for
1: it. So, so there was an incentive that, you know, especially for the smaller groups to make a name for themselves, that they wanted to be the biggest and the baddest on the block they wanted to be the leading story on CNN or on the front cover of the Times, and it led to ever-increasing um, lethality of attacks that not just attack, let's say, military targets, but also eventually move to more soft targets. And then, of course, also changing the nature or the kind of operative you would use, going from young men to eventually women.
0: Yeah, and they, and this... this focus on women as suicide terrorists it was there is a chapter in dying to kill but then you expand on it uh, in in your later book bombshell women and terrorism why did you feel that there was the necessity to have uh, a focus purely on on women in your in your research as the next port of call
1: well so this is this is an unusual uh, admission um when i wrote about women in dying to kill i made a mistake I had, I had based it on um, secondary sources, a journalist named Barbara Victor, who had discussed the first four Palestinian female suicide bombers, and I had assumed that the, you know, the um, story was correct and accurate, and I realized later on that the assumptions that were in Dying to Kill, that women only engaged in violence and became suicide bombers re- as a reaction to what was going on in their lives with regard to men was a mistake. And so I wrote Bombshell as a corrective um, to go back and say, okay, I made a mistake. It also taught me a lesson about collecting my own interviews, (laughs) which was very important. But at the end of the day, um, it was a realization that I had inadvertently contributed to a stereotype that women were not agents of violence. And that, in fact, as I met more and more women and I, and I was very um, fortunate to have great access to women who had been members of the provisional IRA, including women who had gone on hunger strike at the same time as Bobby Sands, that many people didn't know that story. Um, finding out that not only did no man force them into the group, but that, in essence, they might have been more radical than the men and their families. But that often this was the family business, that there was multi-generation involvement, first with the IRA, then the provisional IRA. And in some cases, some of these women went on to be part of the dissident Irish movements.
0: Mm -hmm. So so what you're saying here is that even though the focus of the book is On women and terrorism it's actually not saying that we should be looking any differently at the women who are involved in terrorism as we would be to the to the men who are involved that it's it by doing it that way you're withdrawing their agency as well and i i feel that this is do you find that there are many people who would still look at it and and withdraw the agency from the women who who are involved
1: they they absolutely withdraw the agency because we have this almost psychological block where we cannot believe that women are involved in violence because there's this presumption that women are the softer sex or that they're inherently more peaceful. I mean it even underlies United Nations resolution thirteen twenty five that you know in terms of the protection of women and girls to advocate gender mainstreaming to assume that if you have women in a military force you're not gonna see rape and war. If you have women involved in any process you're not you're going to see more peace and less war i would say that you know you're going to have some women that are more peaceful and some women that are far more bloodthirsty but this this um, erroneous assumption that women are always going to have a mitigating effect on the violence is one of the things that the book fights against and the idea is that you know women not only have agency they've been the leader of some terrorist movements and in fact they can actually be the source of radicalization, not only the source of de-radicalization, and we need to figure out, you know, how to address the women in a way that they participate and they can express their political feelings in a very productive fashion. And you know, part of it was also, you know, other work that was out there on women that said that men were motivated by politics, but women were motivated by emotion and i thought to myself you know having gone back to those interviews and in dying to kill when a when a 40 year old tells me about experiences he has you know he had at the age of 10 i'm thinking well you know those were very emotional experiences you had so everybody is motivated by a combination of emotions memories outrage anger love hate but also politics and religion and it was just different mixtures And that, for me, women probably didn't have the language to be able to articulate the political positions that they had. And so they defaulted to their emotional explanations, which explained why there was such an erroneous understanding of what had motivated women and what had motivated men.
0: So what actually happens when you're looking at women's involvement differently it's you're not just uh putting women's involvement down and looking at it incorrectly you're actually putting men's involvement down by having this gender divide there and that can affect the way as you said the way that we look at de-radicalization disengagement and all other all other ways that we look to counter violent extremism as well. It's, uh, it, was it difficult actually uh, writing a book based on what you have admitted here to have been a mistake in your first, first book? How did, uh, like, how did you approach this uh, yourself as a researcher?
1: Well, so one of the books, you know, you had asked me what, what are the books that influenced me. Um, between sort of living in Israel and then eventually uh, studying it, And there was a long period in which, as a political scientist, and and Bruce Hoffman will be the first to tell you that terrorism was the forgotten stepchild of political science for a long time, that I was actually um, disincentivized or, or definitely not encouraged to study terrorism for my Ph.D., but I sort of read everything. During my master's and my Ph.D., I basically read anything about terrorism. And I had read this book in the 80s called The Terror Network, which I, you know, as I studied more and more, found out to be complete fabrication, and that actually wasn't the case, that all the terrorist groups were, you know, necessarily cooperating in the way that Claire Sterling described. And I thought that it's a hubris that if we make a mistake in our research, we really do need to go back and correct it. So I I know a lot of people probably wouldn't have necessarily Uh, Admitted that they made an error and gone back and written an entire book to fix it. But I also felt that you know was I started uh, I finished dying to kill in 04 and it came out in 05, Um, and then I started uh, bombshell right away. Basically, I started to see that there were trends, whether it was starting in 2005 with Al Qaeda in Iraq using female suicide bombers, I started to see more and more a trajectory, both in places like Chechnya, to eventually even including Afghanistan in 2012, that women would be involved in all the groups and not just the secular ones. And so the, one of the chapters in Bombshell was um, sort of this trend that I do. There's always going to be a chapter in one book about the next book mm-hmm. in Bombshell. I discuss how women are so important with, with regard to the children, mm. this next generation that is being groomed to take the place of their fathers. And, and so in Bombshell, one of the stories I tell is of the Jamiat Islamiyah in Indonesia, where as soon as the government began to take out the male leadership in places like Yogi Jakarta, Poso, and Solo, their 14 and 15-year-old sons stepped right into their shoes. And so it was important for us to understand not just this next generation, but the role that the mothers played in ensuring the continuity of the group, even in the face of targeted assassination, that this made the group um, continue seamlessly, that it became a multi-generational terrorist movement. And this is one of the underlying motivations to write the new book, uh, Small Arms.
0: Yeah, and this is... This is the book that you're doing uh, with John Horrigan for Cornell University Press. Um, and what way did you approach doing this field work? Because as I mentioned in the very opening, you conduct ethnographic field research. Um, this was different kind of research than you had ever done before, I'm sure, more, and dealing with a very different population. So how did yourself and John approach doing the field work here?
1: I mean, some of the field work, we didn't intend to be doing the field work when it fell into our laps. For example, um, we went to Pakistan a number of times to work with an organization called Sabahun, which is a rehabilitation facility for children who um, had been kidnapped by the Pakistani Taliban. And so we had to approach this research very carefully because, um, because of the ethical understanding that we didn't want to traumatize or re-traumatize children and having them discuss their experiences. So the research had to be sort of um, somewhat removed from us sitting down and having a conversation using um, intake files, psychiatric intake files, or for example, we've used a lot of information on ISIS kids from their interviews with reporters or also from inside the encrypted apps that ISIS uses to promote its child suicide bombers or its Cubs of the Caliphate, as they call it. Mm. So, we we had to approach it in a much more creative way, using technology. Um, Many of the groups, as you can understand, up until ISIS, were loath to admit that they were exploiting children. But one of the things I had realized that over the course of interviews for Bombshell Many of the women had talked about how they started in the movement at the age of 15 and 16 and had to lie about their age in order to be allowed to participate in the provisional IRA. And that was one of the driving questions. Um, Did groups have a minimum age? Did they have youth movements to funnel young people eventually into the group? What did they do in these youth movements or these youth camps? Was there paramilitary training? Was there weapons training? And so part of it was trying to suss out how many groups used kids globally, but also how did they find the kids? And I think the biggest um, discovery thus far that we had was that although up until now, most people would consider children in these movements like child soldiers, that, you know, they're very often clustered, they're all under the age of 18, but their process of involvement was so different that we, we thought it merited an entire chapter contrasting child soldiers with children who were involved in terrorist groups. Mm-hmm.
0: And so what were, what were those core, contra- core contrasts and what kind of theoretical influences did you and John have in trying to, to understand exactly what's going on here?
1: Well, so John's a psychologist and so a lot of what he was uh, bringing to the book is about the social ecology is about looking at sort of the, the stages of involvement that he is so well-known for, stages of radicalization, and he was able to develop a model looking at how children became involved and what those steps looked like. Um, theoretically, I approached it um, from almost, a, from a political economy perspective where we were trying to figure out, you know, are kids used in a substitute fashion for example, this is what the literature on child soldiers says, when the adults have been killed, you bring in the children. And this comes from labor economics. This is something that is known both in political science and in economics, that children are a substitute value. But what we also noticed was that children sometimes were able or capable to do things that the adults could not. For example, they might be able to you know, get into places because of their small size, or they might be able to get past guards because of their innocent look. And so they actually had a complementary value. And what I mean by that is, um, the example I'll often give, uh, if you have a nice rug, uh, let's say a Persian rug, or a rug from the Middle East in, in your home, and you're supposed to turn it over, and the way in which you judge the quality of the rug is knots per inch. Okay. We know We know adult fingers cannot make the really small knots. And it is explained in part that there is a lot of child labor in countries that produce these rugs, that only little fingers can make those little knots. And so it's not that the children are substituting for the adults, but that the children actually have a skill that the adults could not physically have. And that was where we had this trade-off. We looked at, you know, are the kids used because there's been losses in battle and they need to substitute the adults? Or are the kids used in different ways that, you know, maybe for the element of surprise, because they look innocent and no one is expecting a child.
0: And I suppose, yeah, it's it's then dependent on on what role that they're using, that they're using the children for. And what when we come to a group like ISIS, um, they have at the, at their inception they were they were saying in their propaganda we are here to protect our women and children however now that they're with children being used by this group how are they now justifying this or what are they saying in their propaganda material about their utilization of children
1: in their propaganda they will explain how the children are you know very steadfast in their belief and that they're on the front lines and and like we saw with their use of very, very old people, say above the age of 70, Um, and now more recently this morning they're talking also about women that are fighting instead of the men. Very often the propaganda is threefold. On the one hand, the children are engaged in these acts of heroic martyrdom and they're in a better place so it's not considered a negative sacrifice. On the other hand, the children are more brave than the adults because they're willing to step up and make the sacrifices that men in the, you know, in the wider Middle East and North Africa region are unwilling to defend the caliphate. And then the third thing is that um, they've used the children very creatively, that it almost seems like there's two sets of children. There's one set of children that they use over and over for their propaganda that are never killed, and then there are disposable children, the children who they use routinely, uh, both as um, ingamasi, which are these commandos, children mixed in with adults in the same unit, as well as car bombers, which surprised me, because my first thought was, how does the 10-year-old know how to drive? And sure enough, we found out they teach the kid to drive only for the purpose of becoming a car bomber.
0: And with this, all your research uh, behind both of you now, what recommendations uh, are you both coming forward with on how to counter this and how to dissipate the use of of children by these groups?
1: The biggest recommendation that we've had to um, wrestle with is what kinds of programs could be put into place, the kind of DDR programs for demobilization and reintegration back into society, because in previous conflicts where we've had child soldiers, um, the, the family could be a great source of support in these instances The parents are still alive, and they colluded with the terrorist group in order to give the terrorists access to the children. The other thing in previous conflicts, what we saw is very positive role played by religion. For example, um, various Christian churches have been able to, either through Catholicism or other interpretations of Christianity, been able to help the kids get over their trauma. In this case. Islam has been distorted, so it seems like the Sabaun model that we saw in Pakistan might be the beginning, but it's not the end of the story. Um, for example, what Sabaun does is it's a three-fold approach. On the one hand, it's regular education, getting the youth up to their level, their grade level that they should have been at had they been in school. The second thing is vocational training, so that there's something they can do you know, in future that. There isn't going to be recidivism because of unemployment, and then the third thing was religious re-education. The challenge is for, let's say, the ISIS cubs. You have kids from, you know, 25, 30 different countries that may or may not be allowed back to repatriate to their other to their home countries. The home countries may be very concerned and worried that these kids in the future will be reactivated, and there will be high. Uh, threat of recidivism, and then the kids going back to, let's say, Middle Eastern countries or in South Asia, those countries don't have the resources to be able to treat the kids. And so the Sabaun model is a great model for, for Pakistani children in Pakistan with a Pakistani problem with Pakistani donors. It's going to be very hard to have that kind of combination dealing with kids if, let's say, ISIS cubs go back to the UK or to Ireland or to France or Belgium or Germany without the stigma that is going to be associated with having been involved as a child foreign fighter or if your parents have been foreign fighters. So there's there's great concerns that the kinds of programs to be able to help the kids will be stymied by a lack of political will or by overriding concerns of security that the kids are a potential threat.
0: And how young are we talking about here? What's the youngest child involvement that you've seen in through your research?
1: So the, the two youngest we saw was um, the four-year-old son of Issa Dare, uh, sorry, Issa Dare, uh, the son of Khadija Dare from the UK, who pressed a remote control and blew up a car with three people in it. And then a three-and-a-half-year-old boy who uh, we think he is of Belgian descent, um, who shot a man in the head in a ball pit at an amusement park. So very, very young. So young that um, I would think that they don't even understand what it is that they did. Uh, For the most part, for the suicide bombers, the youngest was 9, 10. So one of the things that's most surprising about the use of children uh, in ISIS and in Syria and Iraq Uh, that we have over 400 kids that they have themselves eulogized on their networks and promoted. We have the information, but it's not that ISIS is the most egregious perpetrator of exploiting children. In fact, every single group in Syria has used children on the front lines and exploited children, and so ISIS hasn't even used the most. Okay. There are no good guys in Syria. All the organizations, including the ones that have Western support, have exploited children. And that was, that, that'll be one of the important takeaways of the book, that although we can focus quite a bit on ISIS because they're the most um, obvious in their use of kids, they put kids in all the videos, they have kids that are um, carrying out executions in videos. But in fact, when you look at all the groups they're all exploiting kids with an average age of around 14 15 which means that there are some kids who are older but it also means that especially let's say the ypg and the ypk um they're also using very young kids
0: and you mentioned a while back uh you used the word grooming do you see it as 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 equivalent to other forms of grooming
1: Well, certainly with the online space, the way in which ISIS groomed teenage girls is very similar. Um, Ian Elliott, who is in the UK uh, at Gnomes, and I have been working on research. And one of the things that was so interesting is that the process of online grooming for sexual predation looks very similar to what ISIS was doing in terms of identifying a target, isolating the target, um, in trying to create a rapport and a an environment of secrecy, as well as what we see is kind of this love bombing that um, taking people who might be socially isolated and providing them with a lot of very positive sentiment and support. And so all of a sudden, online, this person who ISIS is targeting will have five hundred new friend requests on Facebook and everything they post is liked. And and so it's this form of manipulation of children that the only difference is the outcome. One is for sexual exploitation, and the other one is to get them to Syria for another kind of exploitation. Mm
0: -hmm. So do you, do yourself and Ian and John in in this book believe that we can learn from how with, others have looked at countering online sexual grooming to
1: countering this form of grooming as well? We can, we can, and and I I know that there is a bit of pushback from people who are in the child protection literature because of this assumption that um, the kids in sexual predation are clearly victims and that there are the gray areas, but you know what we're saying is that the kids involved who are being targeted by ISIS are also victims, Mm -hmm. and so we have to understand that there might be at some point a transition from victim to victimizer and the interchangeability of those roles, but we have to first see them first and foremost as kids. And so being able to um, embolden youth against being um, preyed on online, we need to use some of those same tools to protect kids from being targeted by terrorist networks online. We do a very good job of warning kids about one threat, and we we don't do as good a job warning them against the other, and especially with the role, the possible role of what child protection literature calls the deviant peer, or the intermediary. The girls in Bethnal Green Academy were approached by not some old, you know, decrepit man who tried to lure them to ISIS, but by, you know, a 19, maybe she was 20 at the time, a radiology student from Scotland uh, who basically was The intermediary, to convince them, oh, you can trust me, to relate to them, to talk about similar things that they all had in common. In other words, the building of the rapport is very easily accomplished by a peer. And so we see this as well with uh, sexual grooming. Either the the sexual predator pretends to be a youth, uh, approaching other youth, or very often in sexual predation, there is an intermediary where maybe it's the... uh, the older sibling recruits the younger sibling for sexual predation in real life.
0: Yeah, and it's it's all fascinating research. I'm sure so many of our listeners will be looking forward uh, to reading uh, this in depth. When do we expect to, that this book will be out?
1: Oh, that's the million dollar question. <laughs> um, well, we uh, this morning I had to change a 2017 pub date to a 2018 pub date. Um, it will definitely be out. Uh, we are finishing everything up Now, and part of it is that uh, you know, when we first approached Cornell about writing this book, ISIS did not yet exist. We were thinking about the kids we had met in Pakistan, we had thought about, you know, Agra Sinn Fein and the um, paradise camps for the Palestinian kids. Like, we were looking at it in a global way. ISIS did not yet, um, hadn't yet declared a caliphate, wasn't yet in existence hadn't split yet from Al-Qaeda. And sure enough, as we started writing, getting into the research, the entire ISIS Cubs uh, situation unfolded. And we could not write a book about kids and terrorism and not include ISIS. And so uh, we've been fortunate. We have a great team at Georgia State who's been working with us on a daily basis to collect all this material, to code it. And because eventually we want to make the data available for all researchers and make it open so that anyone who wants to study can use the data so we're making sure that it's clean and will be available but you know we couldn't have done this without Chelsea, Aisha, and Vocek I mean they've just been uh, so helpful both in their patience to sift through horrible images that Isis publishes online as well as methodologically to present clean data that um, other researchers moving into the future will be able to go back, also validate our findings, which I think is very important yeah. um, as we look at research in the future.
0: Yeah, and that that leads me on to, to the final question that I have for, for all of our guests. I, you say that it's so important to validate findings and to test and retest. There, how do you feel the overall area of terrorism research is at the moment? Do you feel are you on the side of those who say it's stagnating, or do you think that it's uh, it's in a better state than that?
1: Oh gosh, is there a middle category? <laughs> yes, um, yeah. I would say I would say that you know we've we've seen different periods, different trends have taken over. There was a period of time where, because the field at some point was very small, there was maybe only 30 people working on it, and then 9/11 happened, and there were thousands. Mm-hmm. So one of one of the challenges that I would have to agree with, you know, Mark Sageman's position on this, is there's a lot of bad work out there. There's a lot of work that is uh, anecdote uh, masking as data, work that or work that has been done unethically. you know. For example, um, I've seen presentations where the, allegedly the child answered the door holding a pistol. And my thought is, no, that child was posed. And because I do work on child protection, that's only one step above posing children in pornography. To pose a child, OK, now I'm going to take a picture of you. You hold the gun. I, I find that I'm very, I'm very uneasy about that. Mm-hmm. Um, There's also a lot of work that is basically not much more than than journalism. And there isn't this ability to step back and apply theoretical models, or at least connect it to existing uh, disciplines, whether it's in psychology or in criminology, in political science, whatever discipline you are, to connect it to something larger. Um, But I am hopeful that, given the, the great interest, Um, maybe we're training a generation of students who will apply both ethical research um, standards as well as strong methodological skills to be able to look at this material going in the future. Unfortunately, I've proclaimed the end of terrorism studies with the death of Bin Laden, and again, I was proven very wrong. I I think that we will, unfortunately, see political violence metastasized and reinvent itself in some other groups. But I think that you know the state of the research should take into account all of the things I mentioned. It's Really important for us to have strong ethics and a responsibility for us not to, for example, you'll see people on Twitter taking images that they got from ISIS in order to be the first one to publish that, um, because they want to be interviewed by reporters. We are, in essence, helping ISIS as a terrorist group if we become you know, propagators of their propaganda, if we are disseminating it. So you know, there are different things that we need to take into account. Um, I think there's a responsibility that has been lost because uh, people want to be cited. They want to go on the TV news, on the networks. Uh, maybe there's competition for grants we have to put all that aside and put the ethics first but i also think that we should realize that you know terrorism is not about one group and if all you did was study the ira and then there was no more ira and you didn't like yourself consider what would happen next mm-hmm. you know or how how is this going to change if the only thing you could do was the one group when that group disappears you know you become a historian so i think it's always important to look at the dynamism but if you're looking at these larger trends within a particular field what you say now will still be true 20 years from now these
0: are these are really good messages to to finish up on that responsibility we have as researchers it can't be it can't be spoken strongly enough it's uh the holding research up to ethical standards and this is something that we we have to continue to do but Mia it would be remiss of me not to ask you mentioned earlier on that there's always a chapter in your book to which will introduce the next book what's that chapter going to be in small arms why is the next uh, research project for you
1: well so the research project I'm doing now and I've been I've been very grateful to um, the Minerva Research Initiative because they've uh, funded it has been look, and it's where we got most of the information on the ISIS cubs, was on the encrypted platforms on Telegram. And one of the things that I noticed as I was trying to collect as many channels, I accidentally, in the process, collected chat rooms. And I was able to observe the behavior in the chat rooms that Telegram is almost like a virtual um, Skinner box that there is a variable schedule of reinforcement in order to sustain user engagement and that there were some really interesting parallels between the online space and what I saw as a deliberate fostering of addiction, both psychological and emotional addiction to the platform. They want you to stay online you know, every minute of every day until at some point they take you offline to bring you to the location. Although more recently they've been dissuading the fanboys from traveling to the Middle East and encouraging them instead to act locally, to drive a car into a mob, or here's the instructions on how to build a bomb. And so it's been really interesting looking at the way in which they are fostering engagement and dependence on the platform. So that's one of so I'm I'm becoming more and more of a psychologist um, during the course of my research. Uh, completely untrained, I would add, as I've often been reminded by Dr. Horgan, but that um, we want to see how the behavior changes over time. And uh, I think that that's where, although I don't know if I'll have a special dedicated chapter in small arms, definitely this has been the source of a lot of our uh, our information. And it's been fascinating to see how ISIS, for example, as one terrorist movement, moved from Facebook and Twitter and now it's mostly on Telegram. And we don't know what will be the next move, but we're able to track it in real time. We're able to see things occur and unfold in real time. And that's been just fascinating. Yeah,
0: and that must have, going back to your last answer, that must have had taken time to get uh, IRB ethical approval for that. I'm sure it's a, it was a long, drawn-out process, but one that was definitely worthwhile doing.
1: It actually wasn't a long, drawn-out process. It was relatively easy in part, I think, because it was such a new platform technologically that I don't think that the IRB entirely <laughs> understood what the platform looked like. But the other thing that I've done is I've been um, very forthcoming with sharing the IRB application with our, our colleagues who are in the UK or in Ireland or in other countries, if because I know that they've had some challenges getting onto the network. And so my approach has been, instead of um, this idea of stove piping, that I'm the only person allowed to be on Telegram, I've actually taken a very different position where I would like to see more researchers engaged in the same kind of research to be able to offset you know, just my position or my findings, to be able to have a very large group of people. So I send people my IRB application, and so that in their applications, they can say, this work is being done at Georgia State. But no, it was, it was a surprisingly um, simple, application and because everyone is using uh they're not anon- they're self-anonymizing mm-hmm. and they're using code names there is the protection of subjects built in and people are posting you know publicly so that it's the same kinds of irb that people use in order to access facebook
0: okay now mia i'm sure so many people are are uh, looking are eager to see this research coming out and it's something that they'll be following closely i'd just like to thank you for for giving your time for today's interview. I'm sure our listeners have found it as as interesting as I have. Uh, For those of you who want to um, find links to uh, be able to purchase Mia's books that she mentioned today, Dying to Kill, Bombshell and obviously we don't have a link for small arms yet but when it is out we will put it up uh, be sure to check out our website uel.ac.uk slash or i'll also have links up to uh mechanisms of moral disengagement by albert bandora and fear and trembling by david Rappaport, as well as that book that influenced me uh, in a negative way the terror network by claire sterling uh, it, and so be sure to check all of that out and uh Follow us on Twitter at T-E-R-C-U-E-L and tweet at us with the hashtag TalkingTerror. And be sure to listen in next week. Until then, goodbye.